and we will see from there what we do. But uh, I should have the link for it, but uh, I'll get it up on Facebook, and we'll get it available on the church website. But um, we're, we're going to be doing a podcast where we'll take uh, questions after the sermons and, and address some of those. Specifically, as we're going through the parables, I think there's been different ways people have read the parables. And people might wonder, well, Craig, why did you go this way with that? Or I thought this parable was about this. And it just gives us an opportunity to make sure we're, we're talking through some of those things, especially as we deal with a little bit shortened time uh, with our sermons. And so I'm going to start, uh, like I did last week, with a, um, a little parable of my own. Uh, there was a man who was uh, sitting and listening to a sermon, and the preacher said, you should repent of your sins. And, and the man thought that this was just such a powerful sermon and as soon as he got home from church, he sat down and he sent a text to one of his awful, terrible, no-good co-workers. And he sent him a text and he said, you should repent. The very next Sunday, the man was back in church and the preacher said, you should humble yourself. And he thought that was a really great, powerful sermon. And he thought about one of his co-workers that he thought was awfully proud and arrogant. And so he sat down and typed off an email that said, you should humble yourself. The very next Sunday, he found himself again in church. And that Sunday, the preacher said, you should not tell other people what to do. You yourself should follow God's teaching. And he thought, wow, that's a great, powerful sermon. And after God home from church, he thought about a friend who had told him once that he was self-righteous and arrogant. And so he called that friend and he told that friend that you, you yourself, should not tell other people what to do, but you should follow God's teaching. That night, the man didn't sleep very well. In fact, he died in his sleep, and he found himself before God. And God said to the man, you didn't repent of your sins. And he said, well, you never told me to. And God said, you never humbled yourself. And he said, well, you never told me to. And God said, you spend your whole life telling other people what to do, and you didn't follow my teachings. And the man said, that's not fair. You didn't tell me that either. Sometimes it's hard for us to hear the message God has for us. That's the very problem that we find in Luke chapters 13 and 14. Our parable this morning is coming out of 14, 15 through 22. You can begin turning there if you want. But I'm going to give us the 10,000 foot view, first of all, of what's happening in Luke 13 and uh, 14. All through this, these teaching sections of Jesus, we are getting a series of people who have been rejected from certain events. Luke 13, 3 and 5 begins by Jesus twice warning, unless you repent, you will perish. Then Jesus tells a parable about a fig tree that was not bearing fruit. And he said to the gardener, cut down the tree. And the gardener says, hey, why don't we give it one more year and we'll see if it bears fruit. If it's bearing fruit, let's leave it. If it's not bearing fruit, then we can cut it down. And Jesus says, okay, as if to give a warning that some people are in that final phase of their warning. It's in the uh, 13th chapter, in the 25th verse, that we learn that the door of salvation has been shut. And there are some people who are outside knocking, saying, Lord, open to us. But instead of the door being opened, we find the master instead saying, go away from me, all you evildoers. It's just a couple of verses later that Jesus speaks of, of there being some who have weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves are going to be left thrown out. Then Jesus saying in verse 34 of chapter 13 about Jerusalem, how, how he desired to gather them in. But guess what? You yourselves were not willing 
By the end of chapter 14, Jesus ends by saying that salt is good, but if the salt loses its taste, how can it still be, um, how can its saltiness be restored? It is neither fit for the soil nor the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. There have been a group of people seemingly throughout chapters 13 and 14 who did not recognize the message was for them. They were content where they were, excited about where they were, and yet Jesus is constantly saying, you may find yourself in the outs, but will those who have ears to hear, will they listen? Now, coming from that 10,000-foot view, looking a little bit more closely at our parable in Luke 14, we find Jesus in 14.1, he's at a dinner hosted by one of the leader of the Pharisees. And there, as they're at that dinner, there's uh, one man who, who shouts out and he says, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This concept of the kingdom of God and this concept of eating and drinking and feasting are all Jewish ways of saying when God comes and establishes his rule and his reign, then we will be there, feasting and delighting. And so this man is saying, essentially in our language today, he's saying when we all get to heaven, and how does Jesus address somebody who is so confident about when we all get to heaven when they have not yet done what his gospel calling has been? See, this is the idea that's communicated in Isaiah of this feasting. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, we will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, and of food filled with marrow, and of well-aged wines strained clear. Verse 9. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So the man is saying, when we all get to heaven, I mean, this is going to be fine. Jesus is worrying about the poor and he shouldn't be worrying about the poor. Jesus is worrying about um, the lame and, and the blind. And let's just think about when we all get to heaven. But Jesus, when he began his ministry, began by saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. But... Apparently, there are some who think they don't have anything for which they need to be repenting of. There are some who believe that the message is always for another. And how is it that Jesus is going to get these people who are convinced that they're going to be there, that perhaps they need to be paying attention to Jesus' calling? And so to communicate his message to them, Jesus tells them a parable, beginning in Luke 14, verse 16. Then Jesus said to him, Someone great gave a great dinner and invited many. At, that, at the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. So during the time of Jesus, they used a two-step invitation process as contrasted to our one-step process. So here's how an invitation works in our culture. Um, just in case you've never been invited to anything, I just thought I'd let you know this is how it works. Somebody says, hey, I'm having a barbecue this weekend on Friday. Do you want to come? And you say, sure, I would love to. What time? The person says, Friday at 6 o'clock, and you get it down in your calendar, and Friday at 6 o'clock you show up. That's a one-step invitation process. But for this culture, they did a two-step process, which was somebody would go to somebody and say, hey, I'm having a barbecue this weekend on Friday. Do you want to come? And the other person would say, sure, let me know when it's ready. 
And so the cooks go off and they cook and they get everything ready. When it looks like the food's about done, then they go off and they tell people, all right, it's time to come now because the food is ready. Now, I've lived in a, a non-time-oriented culture without things like stoves and refrigerators and freezers, and so I've experienced the benefit of a two-step process. Uh, I was once asked to do a wedding vow renewal ceremony, and afterwards they were going to kill a pig and we were going to feast together. So we went, we did the vow ceremony, I think it ended around 1 or 2 in the afternoon, and then people just began to wait around for the feast where we were going to eat this pig. About two hours into waiting, I finally went to the host and I said, do you have any idea what time the food might be ready? And he said, well, the, the pig actually escaped during the wedding, so the boys are still out in the jungle trying to recatch the pig. But once they recatch the pig and they bring it back and they cook it, then we'll be ready to eat. And I went home because I wasn't ready to wait for that long period. And so what we find in this parable is this phase where... They've already RSVP'd. They're saying, yeah, I'm going to come over. And now they're just going to let them know, okay, now the time is here to come. And yet we find a shocking response beginning in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought my piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another have said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. And another said, I have just been married, and therefore I cannot come. What we need to realize is that these responses would be completely unfeasible, unexpected. The, the idea that somebody would have earlier said, yeah, I will be there, and when the time comes, they choose to do something else instead, those listening would be thinking, you would have to be an idiot not to accept the invitation when the time comes. Now, I want us to get a sense of what declining an invitation like this would look like. And I'm going to show us a video clip in just a minute. But I have to set up the clip because you have to know who these people are. It's, it's preparing for an interview between two people. One is a guy named Eugene Peterson. Uh, Eugene Peterson is the guy who translated um, the message in, in the Bible. And the other guy is a guy named Bono. Does anybody know who Bono is? There's a little rock band called U2. Um, I think they've sold 170 million uh, records. They've won 22 Grammy Awards more than anyone else. Bono himself is worth $700 million. And so we're going to just watch this little bit of a clip as Eugene Peterson is going to have an opportunity to meet Bono. So let's go ahead and play that clip. I never heard of Bono before. And then uh, one of my students um, showed up in class with a uh, copy of the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones? And in it there was an interview with Bono in which he talked about me and the message. And he used in some, you know, slangy language about who I was. And uh, and I said, who's Bono? And they, they were confounded. I'd never heard of Bono. <laughs> but that's not the service that I really traveling very much. So that's how I heard about him. One day and I listened to his music and I thought, I like this guy. And I, I was starting to, after a while, I started was start being quite pleased that he knew me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the rest of the story is when the, he invited you to come and hang with him for a while, you turned him down. I was, I was pushing a deadline on the message. Uh, I was finishing up the Old Testament at the time, and I really couldn't do it. I, 
you may be the only person alive who would turn down the opportunity just to make a deadline. I mean, come on. It's it's final for crying out loud. Indeed, it was Isaiah. So how would you react if someone says, yeah, I was invited to go hang out with Bono, but I was a little busy translating the Bible that time. That, that kind of reaction is the kind of reaction that is being discussed here. The, the kind of thing that people would, would just be blown away that somebody wouldn't take up that invitation or opportunity. If we can go ahead and have the lights turned back on here. So there are these kinds of people whose priorities, according to everyone else, is out of whack. Now, what kind of a people would not accept an invitation? People, I would assume, that have a very high view of themselves. People who are proud and independent. That they're certainly not dependent on the host. That that it's almost, it's not like they're not going to eat if they don't accept this host's invitation. And so they have no need for the host. And they decline his invitation. Remember I was telling you about that vow renewal thing that I was invited to, this feast, and I left before it was ready? There's a few reasons why I could leave before it was ready. Number one, I had my own vehicle. When I was ready to go, I could go. Number two, I had a freezer at home, and that freezer at home had its own stock of meat supply. I had this really cool thing called an oven, and in just 45 minutes or so, you can put that meat in there, and it gets cooked. I knew I could drive home, get meat out of my freezer, put it in the oven, and eat before the boys had even found the pig. But most of the folks who we were there with did not have those options. They didn't have their own vehicle. They didn't have their own meat waiting at home. And so they stuck around to the bitter end. Somebody later told me it was about 1 a.m. that the pig was finally ready and the feast was done. But some of us have too many resources to think it's that important to wait around for the feast to be done and ready. And so they come and they say no. We're not going to attend. Now, as shocked as people would have been about the the response of these three guests, I think they would have been equally or maybe even more shocked by the response of the master. So the slaves, this is uh, Luke 14, beginning in verse 21. So the slaves returned and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry, and he said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes and town." And bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you have ordered has already been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and the lanes and compel people to come in so that my house might be full. So here's what typically we would expect to happen if someone declined an invitation. The host would would put together a little picnic, a little care package of the food, and they would send it over to them. Because the host cannot afford to no longer have these people as their friends. In, in a world where there are no freezers, how do you know that you're going to get meat in the future? Is I'm going to feed you my meat so that in the future you will feed me your meat. And so the host will always want to keep that, that reciprocity going. And the people who said no, at least the very first two people, are, are, are noticeably very wealthy people. A person who's going to buy a piece of land that they need to go out and inspect is larger than the average piece of land. Most people's piece of land, you can just look at it like, yep, looks good to me. I mean, think about your properties at home. 
Uh, if you live in town, you likely don't have to go walk around and inspect it. It's too small. The guy who buys the five oaks, uh, oak of uh, yoke of oxen, um, he would have probably a farm that's three to four times the size of average. So if you have wealthy friends and they turn you down, you're going to do whatever you can to make sure that relationship keeps going, right? So you send the food. But in this case, the master says, you know what? I'm going to go out and I'm going to invite anybody who is willing to come. And so he goes and invites people who lived in unwanted places. He goes to where the less fortunate live, to where the overlooked lived. And he says, hey, I want you to come and to be a part of my banquet. But when we think about that happening, that in itself is surprising because the meals gave you an opportunity to do one thing. And either it's going to increase your stock or decrease your stock. It's going to increase your reputation or decrease your reputation. And it's all based on who you're sitting at the table with. And so if you get people who are well-known in society sitting at the table, that raises your status. But if you sit with people who, who are of low repute, that will lower your status to the point that your family may disown you. Uh, to the point that people in your community will begin to ostracize you. Nobody would consider lowering themselves to be around these less than fortunate people. The only benefit of that is you will be lowered, but they can be raised. They can be seen as more important. And so the host shows here this astonishing act of grace. He spurns the important people in their view of him in order to lift up and give attention to those who are used to being neglected. And then the parable ends in this way, and I want you to be sure you notice the shift from third person to first person. Luke 14, 24, For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Remember, we've been talking about a host this whole time, but now Jesus personalizes this. And now he makes sure that they know that they will not be invited to his dinner. So the man said, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying the only way to eat bread in the kingdom of God is to come to my dinner. And these are people who are at that moment are at a dinner with Jesus. And all they're doing is they're, they're, they're refusing him. They're rejecting him. They're rebelling against him. And yet they want to anticipate being at the kingdom of God, sitting at the feast of God. And Jesus is saying right now you are beginning to feast with God and yet you want nothing to do with it. And if people reject that invitation, they will find themselves left out. And so here's three takeaways I find in this parable. Number one, the kingdom is available now. I mean, throughout his ministry, Jesus is telling people that the kingdom of God is here and that the kingdom of God is coming. It is available to those who are willing and ready to repent. And so Jesus is telling these people, you are in fact sitting here at the feast of the table of the kingdom of God. And those who begin sitting here now at the end times will still be sitting and feasting at the table of the kingdom of God. They've been expecting Jesus, they've been expecting the kingdom to come. And Jesus is saying the kingdom's come, but you want nothing to do with it. Second thing I think we are to see in this is that the kingdom is unexpectedly gracious. 1996, uh, Dr. Dan Herman coined a term that I think he probably had no idea how popular it would become. The term was fear of missing out. Now we don't even say the whole thing. We just call it FOMO, right? This notion that something important is happening and that other people might be experiencing it, but somehow I'm going to be left out. When it comes to the kingdom, there is no concern or fear 
of being left out. When, when you look at the invitation list of those who are invited, all of us will find our names listed there. We have been welcomed to and we have been invited to participate in that. It doesn't matter your resume. It doesn't matter your history. It, it doesn't matter all of those sort of things. The kingdom is being opened and made available to all. And so in that, we find a kind of grace that is unparalleled in our world. But that has to be paired with this third observation that the kingdom makes uncompromising demands. To say that all are invited does not mean that all will attend. It's not the master who is saying you are not welcome. It is those who are saying I'm too busy or I'm too preoccupied or I've got all of this stuff going on that I just simply don't have time to accept the invitation. No one will be left out but people who refuse to accept the uncompromising demands of Jesus are those who, as we've seen in 13 and 14, find themselves on the outside. In fact, as soon as this parable ends, this is what Jesus says, beginning in verse 25. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and he said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. See, when we think of the kingdom of God, we have to hold these two things together. And we're often told we just choose one. Either we have the gracious kingdom or the kingdom that makes uncompromising demands. And Jesus puts these two things together. The kingdom is more gracious than anything we will encounter or anticipate in this life. But the kingdom will simultaneously make demands that are higher than any other demand that will be made of your life. As you think about the third person saying, I've just married, I cannot come. And now Jesus says, even those who prioritize wives above me. I think what Jesus is trying to do is to shake the proud, the stable, and the confident into accepting the invitation of the banquet. And the thing that I think all of us need to wrestle with is... Are we the ones who are hearing what we need to hear? Or are we the ones who are so confident and so sure that Jesus is talking about them? When Jesus may in fact be calling us to humble repentance. We all need to hear this message of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe in the good news. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. With the love of God and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.